What is going on? Everybody that's tuned in, welcome to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. My name is Ryan, episode 37. Football, football, and football. We love football. It's underway. Two weeks of college football, a full week of the NFL. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about everything. Winners, losers, what should have happened, what shouldn't have happened, phonies, fakes, frauds, and the real deal teams that we want to get dialed in on, and college football, because it was a pretty crazy week of college football. A lot of teams that lost, that shouldn't have lost, lost the game that they played. The rankings got shaken up a little bit, shooken up, shaken up, doesn't matter. Thank you guys for tuning in to episode 37. Let's get straight into the action. The Phenomenal Fan Podcast, a podcast by the fan, for the fan. back we love it we love everything about it i can't even explain to you how exciting it is to just like know on a weekly basis that football is back that feeling you get when to be honest as a as an adult going through my work week or even when i was in school knowing that listen i'm gonna have football on thursday friday i'm not but i don't give a shit because it's friday Saturday, I got football. Sunday, I got football. Monday, I got football. So to be honest, I got a two-day week. Got to get through Tuesday. And honestly, I spent half the day looking through options of guys to add and trade of my fantasy teams. So I got like half a Tuesday with football. Get through Tuesday night. Get through Wednesday. We're back with football. I love football season. I love the fall. This shit is so electric. I love it. I love it. We had a ton of games go down obviously now here's the thing okay what we can surmise what we can take away if you will let's just let's just do that okay the takeaways from week one in the nfl for me are as follows number one trey lance is gonna lead the 49ers to a top five draft pick next year, meaning they're going to lose a lot. Number two, the Bills and the Chiefs are far and away the best teams in the NFL. I don't really think it's particularly close. Number three, the Eagles are legit. Yeah, they only beat the Lions by three points, but that's just the end of the game. Lions were playing for a lot. Eagles weren't playing for much. The Eagles are going to score a lot. They play pretty good defense. And looking at that division, they probably have the best chance of winning that thing. Number three or number four? I can't remember. I think it's number four. Well, wait. Let's see. Trey Lance was one. Bills Chiefs was two. Okay, Eagles was three. Number four, 
the Titans and Ryan Tannehill are the best team in the NFL at underperforming and losing to teams they shouldn't. The Titans have the lowest floor and the highest ceiling of NFL teams. They have the lowest floor and the highest ceiling gap of any team in the NFL. They could lose to the worst team in the league one week, and they could beat the best team in the NFL the next week. I don't know what it is. I think it's a combination of if their offense is clicking and Derrick Henry's running the ball, they're going to put up some points. And if their defense is clicking, they'll shut anybody down. Anybody. Number four, Tom Brady is still going to be effective this year. Nobody's doubting that. And number five, what's apparent to me is that you need to play preseason football if you're in the NFL. Russell Wilson didn't play a single snap of preseason football this year for the Broncos. It showed big time in his game against the Seahawks. Not in the sense of he looked bad, but in the sense of his timing was off, his receivers weren't quite on the same page with him, constantly having to throw guys around in the formation. And Joe Burrow, not due to his own problems. I think he had appendicitis or he had an operation, small minor operation. Joe Burrow didn't play in the preseason. Four picks and a fumble. I don't think Derek Carr played in the preseason. And he didn't look good. So the teams that did play in the preseason, Chiefs played, the Chiefs played their starters in all three games. The Bills played their starters in at least two out of the three. And it shows. So I think the NFL teams need to start considering or at least reconsidering uh, their strategy, their approach for preseason football. Okay? That's just me personally. Uh, Going through the scoreboard, man, I mean, a lot of these games didn't really surprise anybody, and a lot of them did. Bills beating the Rams didn't shock many people. Saints beat the Falcons, not a shocker. I mentioned Trey Lance already. The Bears beat the 49ers. Trey Lance looked just not good. Not really bad, but no, he looked he didn't look good. He didn't look good. Steelers Bengals was a bit of a shocker. Just the Bengals coming off the AFC Championship, playing the Steelers with Mitch Trubisky. It was shocking to have the Steelers win that game. Eagles beating the Lions doesn't shock anybody. Honestly, Dolphins beating the Patriots didn't shock anybody. Ravens, Jets, Ravens dominated, not shocking. Commanders and the Jags, kind of a toilet bowl game there, but the Commanders are probably the better team. So Commanders winning, not shocking. Browns beating the Panthers, I think, was a little bit surprising to people. A lot of people had Baker Mayfield coming out, fired up, ready to go. And he was, but the Browns winning that game kind of surprised some people. Colts and the Texans tying, that's bad. I mean, it's bad. Uh, it's bad on the Colts because the Colts need to win that football game. I mean, you have Matt Ryan and Jonathan Taylor, and you're playing the Texans. And you have Jonathan Taylor running for 161 yards, Michael Pittman catching 121 yards worth of receiving yards, and they lose the, a tie, essentially, to the Texans. The Giants beating the Titans. We talked about the Titans with their low, low, low floor. Giants beating the Texans is a shock. The Vikings beating the Packers is not like an all-time shocker, but the the fashion in which they did, where Aaron Rodgers just looked bad, twenty-three to seven, 
not surprising. Or should I say, very surprising. Chiefs and Cardinals, Chiefs dominated, not surprising. Buccaneers beating the Cowboys was kind of a surprise, but but uh, Dak Prescott got hurt. Buccaneers have great defense. The Seahawks beating the Broncos on Monday night was definitely a surprise, but that game was completely mishandled, and we will get into that later on. And then the game I wanted to leave for last is the Chargers and the Raiders because the Chargers beat the Raiders, and I don't think many people were shocked by that. But what I will say, okay, and this will tie into another topic we have a little bit later on, all right? I've had this conversation with a few different people, and I don't think it's out of the realm to speculate, maybe either for fun or actually serious, on the influence that sports gambling has in the leagues, in the professional sports leagues we have today. And this will tie into the next subject we talk about. But looking at how the Chargers went about their business on the touchdown scoring drive of the game. So it was 3-3 to in the second quarter. Chargers get the ball at the 33-yard line. They move it down the field. They get down to third and four at the five-yard line. Justin Herbert scrambles, gets hit hard, automatic first down at the one-yard line. Now, no one had scored a touchdown to that point. And one of the most common bets in the NFL is first touchdown scorer. When you go down the list of players to potentially score a first touchdown, in a Raiders and Chargers game, a lot of names start to pop into your head, right? Austin Eckler, Keenan Allen, Josh Jacobs, Devontae Adams, Mike Williams, Hunter Renfro, Darren Waller, Gerald Everett. I mean, shit, even even Justin Herbert scrambling in for, well, yeah, I would say even Justin Herbert scrambling in for a touchdown. Derek Carr scrambling in for a touchdown. None of those guys scored the first touchdown. In fact, on first and goal from the one-yard line, instead of handing it off, instead of throwing it to one of their playmakers, Herbert pulls out a play action and throws a pass that was incomplete, attempted for Richard Rodgers. Okay? Richard Rodgers has 15 career touchdowns in the NFL in seven seasons. So that's an average of about a touchdown and a half per season. Per season! And he gets the first goal line target for the first game for the, uh, the Chargers. Incomplete. Next play, play action, throw to the fullback, Xander Horvath. Seventh round pick out of Purdue. Did they score? Yes. Would some people claim that it was just part of the play design and misdirection and that they're not going to pay a lot of attention to a no-name guy? Probably. But I'm saying... It doesn't seem completely out of the realm for the offensive coordinators for both teams to get a call before the game from the head of uh, all the sports books in Vegas, and they say, here's the guys that can't score first. Because if they do, we lose a lot of money. If you're able to let this guy, this guy, or this guy score first, you guys will both receive a small stipend, direct deposit in your bank 
on Monday morning. And that's the end of it. Is it true? Does it happen? Probably not. But after seeing some of the stuff I saw this weekend with some documentaries, I wouldn't be shocked if that was the case at all. I'm just saying it is what it is. I'm not going to sit there and tell you that it's true. Just speculation. It's fun to talk about. It's a conspiracy theory. But listen, I think it's a little bit suspicious when the two targets they have in the red zone on first and goal are Xander Horvath and Richard Rodriguez. Richard Rogers, not Rodriguez. That's a pitcher in the big leagues. I think it's, I mean, I don't know what to make of it, but I think it's very suspicious. First and goal from the one-yard line, and they go to Richard Rogers and Xander Horvath. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That'll tie into the next subject, okay? Uh, you know what? No, it's going to be, it's at the end. It's at the end, okay? On the topic of the NFL, again, this wasn't uh, quite as maybe rigged as you'd like to say, but everybody can agree that in the Broncos and Seahawks game on fourth down and five, for the Broncos to not have Russell Wilson on the field on fourth down and five and instead go for a 64-yard field goal that they miss and lose to the, to the Seahawks, it's bananas. Everybody can agree it's bananas, okay? Everybody is criticizing Nathaniel Hackett, the head coach of the Broncos, for not going for it on fourth down and kicking the field goal. That seems to be a bigger story or for some reason such a huge question mark when in reality the only people to blame for the loss for the Denver Broncos, the only people are Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. Two different running backs on two different occasions who fumbled the ball on the one-yard line going for a touchdown. Because if either one of those touchdowns is converted, they're not even anywhere near that situation. In fact, they're winning the game. So I'm kind of tired of coaching decisions and these borderline potential situational decisions being criticized at the end of the game when I can guarantee you almost certainly in most situations early on in the game, there's one or two other plays that could have completely swung the outcome, and not even led to that questionable decision at the end of the game. And on top of it, it's a situation where if McManus drills it from 64, he's a hero, Hackett made a questionable but decent decision, and the Broncos win, and nobody talks about, you know, the rest of the year. So not letting Russ throw the ball there is absolute insanity. Absolute insanity. But. Listen, at the end of the day, you can't do much about it, okay? I think let's focus on early parts of the game instead of just the one decision-making process. And, yeah, you know what? They'd have made the right decision. Who knows? They go for it, and they get it on fourth down. Then they line up for a 35-yarder, and then McManus misses it or something. Like, you know, you just you never know. Or they go for it on fourth down and don't get it. Oh, well, they could have tried 64-yarder, 
Like, no, dude, it doesn't matter. Don't put yourself in that situation to begin with by fumbling the rock twice on the goal line. Can't happen, shouldn't happen. Can't happen, shouldn't happen. Okay? Moving on to college football, because the rest of the NFL storylines were okay. But in college football, man, what a week we had. What a week. Okay? Of the top 25, there was, I think there was only one top 25 matchup or potentially two. Uh, Tennessee played Pittsburgh 24 and 17, 24 ranked, 17 ranked. Number 20, Kentucky against number 12, Florida. And number 21, Baylor, number 21, BYU against number nine, Baylor. Okay. Number nine, Baylor lost to BYU. Number 12, Florida lost to Kentucky. And number 17, Pittsburgh lost to Tennessee. All of the higher-ranked teams in all three of the top 25 matchups lost. Marshall beat number 8, Notre Dame. Appalachian State beat number 6, Texas A&M. And Georgia Southern beat an unranked, beat an unranked Nebraska team. Okay, Nebraska wasn't ranked, but Nebraska is just is such a bigger program. Uh, with so much more money, and Georgia Southern should never be competing with them at any point. So, oh, and number one Alabama narrowly and probably shouldn't have beaten Texas, but they did. They beat Texas 20-19. to 19. I was at the game. It was crazy, stupid, ridiculously hot. Uh, but Texas jumps from unranked to number 21 after an excellent performance uh, by their team and almost beating Alabama. The craziest part of the entire weekend is finding out what these big-time schools paid these small schools and then getting beat by the small schools. It's unbelievable. The big schools in the United States, on a common, consistent basis, pay the smaller schools to come play them, basically covering the traveling. It's basically covering the travel, helping fund the program, and who knows what else they do with the money. But they pay over a million dollars per game to play these small schools. It's an easy win. Get them into town. Get some reps for the guys against new players across the line of scrimmage. Uh-oh. Notre Dame, you didn't show up. And you lose to Marshall. Texas A&M, you just didn't show up. And you lost to Appalachian State. Texas paid Appalachian State 1.5. Actually, let me... Let me clarify that before I go any further. Number six, Texas A&M paid Appalachian State $1.5 million to play against them, and they got beat by Appalachian State, 17 to 14. Nebraska paid Georgia Southern $1.4 million to play them. They got beat 45 to 42. Notre Dame, number eight Notre Dame, paid Marshall $1.25 million to play them, and they got beat by Marshall 26-21. What's the moral of the story? What can people take away from this? Anybody who is a competitor at any level needs to understand that talent does not win. Only talent. Only talent. Yeah, people have to understand Strictly talent does not play in sports. 
when you get up to college and professional levels, strictly talent will not just win you games outright. Every time you suit up at any level, you need to lace up your shoes and your or your cleats. You need to treat your body right. You need to stay healthy. And you need to go out and play like you're playing against the best team in the country. Because if you do, and you're way better than the team you're playing, you'll kill them. But that's the main thing they have to take away from this. These teams paid all this money to these small schools. And they thought they were just going to show up and out-talent them and beat them. Not the case. When you show up to play in a game, in any sport, at any level above high school, always be ready to show up and play. Because if you don't, you'll lose before you even realize it. All of a sudden, it'll be the fourth quarter in a basketball or football game. It'll be the sixth or seventh inning in a baseball game. And you go, holy shit, we're about to lose to a team that is so much worse than we are. That's what happens if you don't show up and play. And you're entitled and you feel like the world owes you something. Good for Appalachian State. Good for Georgia Southern. And good for Marshall. Good for them. That's an awesome, awesome, awesome job by them. Yeah. It's amazing. On the topic of college football, Alabama beats Texas. Number one ranked Alabama beats Texas by one point. In the process, Texas starting quarterback Quinn Ewers gets injured and doesn't play for 65, 70% of the game. Texas puts in a backup quarterback. They play Alabama super tight. And at the end of the game, after some controversial calls, Alabama comes out with a 20-19 victory. After the game, the Alabama players are seen doing horns down. Horns down. Because the Texas logo is horns up, go Longhorns. Alabama players are doing horns down. Nick Saban, running across the field after the game to shake the opposing coach's hand, sees some of his players doing it, screams at him, hey, don't do that shit. Because, A, Steve Sarkeesian, the Texas head coach, is a former Alabama assistant, so he's got a lot of respect for Steve. And, two, a more broad point is that horns down is one of the more loser – what's the best way to put this? Players and teams that do horns down when they play Texas – are they should be embarrassed that they do it because it's such a desperation uh it's a loser mentality type of thing who cares what the other team's logo is what the hand gesture is none of it matters especially if you almost lose The Alabama players were so focused on doing horns down because you can't do it during the game. You have to do it after the game and not get a penalty. They're so focused on doing it that they barely beat Texas by one point with a backup quarterback in the game. I think anybody who does does a horns down uh, is pathetic. I think it's super lame. I think it's super tacky. 
And there's no reason why Saban shouldn't be as pissed as he is. He was super pissed, and rightfully so. I think Horns Down is super fucking lame, and I think, I mean, people are going to do it. People are going to do whatever they want to do, right? I mean, when you play TCU, right, TCU has the bent fingers horned frogs, the two index and middle finger horned frogs. When people beat TCU, do they go horns down, horned frogs down? No. Arizona State has the shocker. Right? Pinky, middle finger, and index finger all up in the air with the ring finger held down by the thumb. Shocker. When people play Arizona State and beat them, do they go shocker down? No. So why do people do it at Texas? Because it's a bigger program? And they have a couple national championships under their belt? I mean, for God's sake, Alabama was the number one team in the country. Texas was unranked, and they beat them by one point, and they're out there doing horns down. How embarrassing is that? How pathetic is that? So lame. So lame. And who cares what anybody else's hand gestures are? Show up, play the game, kick their ass, and get out of there. Who cares? That's how it should be. I'm not saying don't show emotion. I'm not saying don't get fired up. Right? Get a sack, get fired up, high five your teammates, do whatever you got to do. Turnover chain, whatever you got on the sidelines. Love it. Let's do it. But don't make it about the other team, especially when you're the number one team in the country and the other team was unranked and you beat them by one point. That's my take on the horns down thing. I think it's embarrassing. I think it's super, super, super uh, desperate. Desperate. That's been the the recap for football. The last thing I wanted to talk about, right? We talked about the Chargers first touchdown thing. Is it rigged? Is it not rigged? No. I mean, right. Let's be honest. It's not. Fun to talk about it, though. Okay. For those of you who haven't seen the Netflix documentary about Tim Donahue, the former NBA referee who was placing bets and giving picks on NBA games he was refing in, you have to go watch it. Because... For me, the only thing that it absolutely verifies that I've always had in the back of my head is that NBA games are rigged at some level, at some capacity. Whether that's players getting the benefit of the doubt on some calls, that's whether that's specific players getting the benefit of the doubt on some of the calls, or points being added or shaved because of some questionable, very weirdly targeted fouls and non-foul calls and the arbitrary nature that almost anything is called in the NBA, right? They'll go down and call a travel on somebody and the guy will get the ball, take it down the court on the, on the same, like a guy will get a ball uh, in the uh, post, a big forward, a center. He'll start backing a guy down. He'll pick it up, take a couple steps, throw it down. And the referees go, Mm-mm-mm. whistle. That's a travel. And the guys complain about it. Ah, what? That's crazy. Ball gets inbounded, taken down to the other end of the court. Guy will do the exact same thing or seemingly the exact same thing. Not a travel. In the Tim Donahue documentary, there was a moment in that documentary specifically where Tim Donahue calls a travel on Michael Jordan for the spin move that they were told about. The NBA went to the referees and said, hey, this new spin move is becoming popular amongst the players. And technically, it's a travel. So if we're going to see it more often, 
let's call it a travel because we don't want this unfair sort of move to be a regular thing in the NBA. First, one of the guys, one of the first guys to do it in a game that Tim Donahue was refing was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan does it. Donahue calls this a travel. Michael Jordan complains. Head coach complains. Later on, somebody in the league, including one of his referee friends, comes up to him and says, "Hey, man, we want him to call. Like, we want you guys to call that, but not on him." And he's being told that by an NBA official. Tell me that's not going on still today. Seriously, tell me it's not. He also said, he also mentioned that the NBA told them it would be better for them if series went longer. Six games, seven games for TV contracts and for money. The referees can very easily swing a game one way or another, especially if it's a one possession game late in the fourth quarter. One foul call here, one non-call there, all of a sudden one of these teams wins and we get a game seven. Am I saying that the outcome of the games are rigged and that one team is destined to win over the other one? No. But what I am saying is the NBA is the easiest sport in the entire world to just simply swing one way or another and rig to benefit the league as a whole. Keep the star players healthy, keep the star players from fouling out, and to extend playoff series and games as long as they possibly can. So go watch the Tim Donahue documentary on Netflix and tell me that thought doesn't at least creep into your head in some capacity, that the NBA is corrupt in in that capacity and that they can't just very easily feed that in and make a bunch of money. It's super, super simple. It's the same exact reason, in my opinion. I mean, I know the Warriors are amazing. The Warriors are an amazing, amazing talent. Uh, you know, talented rosters, Steph, Clay, Draymond, Jordan Poole. But the Warriors have, I think it's the biggest fan base in the NBA, besides maybe like the New York Knicks or uh, maybe the Lakers, you know, those types of long-term destined, like the Celtics. But besides those, like the new wave fan base is all, all Warrior fans. And the Warriors just conveniently find themselves in the NBA Finals every single year. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about. But either way, guys, that's it. That's all we got. That's all the time we have for 30 minutes of sports talk, high powered, nonstop action. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. Hopefully, you guys uh, will ref, you know, uh, recommend it to your friends because we really appreciate anybody that tunes in on a consistent basis, whether it's one person or a million people. We love talking sports, and uh, there's no reason why uh, we can't just keep it going. So, hopefully, you guys enjoyed episode 37. Check us out on social media: Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we appreciate it. If you're not, go check us out on Apple Apple uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check us out on YouTube. Anything you guys want, man. We appreciate you guys tuning in as usual. And we'll catch you guys on episode 38. Thanks for listening to the Phenomenal Fan Podcast. Want more? Follow us on social media and subscribe to Patreon for exclusive content.